Today's episode is a pretty special one. You know, if, you, if you've been doing well and doing your work and managing your mental health and you're kind of trucking along and then have a day at work where usually it's an interaction, but somebody else does something or says something or has a tone and all of a sudden you are having some sort of out of proportion reaction as far as you know to what is happening and you're having that potential re-triggering episode but you're at work and it's really confusing and doesn't make sense that's what we're talking about today we're talking about how workplaces can be like families even when we don't want them to be not in the oh we're a family at work kind of raw raw talk but in kind of all of the worst ways and how that can really send our mental health and our work performance off kilter if you want to be able to have a workplace culture that can support both good performance and well-being my guest today is so inspiring with the work that he does, the level of vulnerability as a leader in business that he shares. And I'm really excited to have you listen in. So join me. We do talk about some issues around childhood abuse that if you find that triggering, this might not be the episode for you. And if you find you need some support to please reach out and get the support that you need through your own therapist, your trusted loved ones, family and friends, community members, all of the things that you need to do to take care of yourself, okay? Welcome to the Christina Crow Podcast, Making the Invisible Visible. I'm your host, Christina Crow. I'm a psychotherapist and a relentless mental health advocate in Ontario, Canada. I'm bringing you my clinical insights and research-based facts on modern mental health and I'm going to bring you the experts I rely on to share their wisdom with you. Let's do it, guys. Let's dig a little deeper and make invisible things visible. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Christina Crow podcast, where we connect the dots and search for more balanced mental health. Today, we're making invisible things visible for people searching for the courage to be both vulnerable at work, but to influence their work culture towards something that feels more psychologically safe for everybody. In today's episode, I am talking to Michael Deveni, a trailblazing Canadian leader who talks about the intersections of his own mental health journey and his experiences as an entrepreneur. Michael created, implemented, and completed the largest survey in the world focused on the intersection of entrepreneurs and mental health with focus on decision-making and well-being with eight published reports on the findings called The Mindset Project. Michael also founded and developed Work Insights, a company focused on measuring and understanding the employee experience to enable healthier working environments. A recent project also included using analytics to develop the mental health strategy for a provincial organization here in Canada. Michael started his career in the investment industry, earning a chartered financial analyst designation, along with a fellowship from the Canadian securities industry after graduating from Acadia University with a Bachelor of Business Administration. 
Yay, Acadia. Michael also attained his ICD-D designation, certified as a corporate director from the Institute for Corporate Directors in the Rotman School of Business, as well as a diploma in applied positive psychology from Sir Wilfrid Laurier University. A true lifelong learner, Michael continues on. He completed the Disruptive Strategies Diploma Program through the Harvard Business School and a Strategic Alignment and Alternative Strategies Certificate from Oxford University's said School of Business, a Certificate in Learning Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion from Northwestern, and a Certificate in Behavioral Decision-Making from the London School of Economics. Michael, I find your transparency so compelling. And I, I know you give a voice to many people, men in particular, uh, being you know a leadership position in the world of business, who don't feel that they can be as open about their own experiences in the world that they've had throughout their lives while they're at work. Even though at work is, is where a lot of the triggers for some of those early experiences show up and they can really take us by surprise and the people that we work with. And so, you know, you've disclosed some of your own experiences that are really common amongst all people are rarely discussed at work. And I have so much admiration for how I think courageously you, it's not just about being able to talk about it, but how you just embody it and you own it and you still continue to lead and do the amazing things that you do. And and how did, I just want to know, like, how did you initially find the courage to do that? Well, first, thank you. I never think of it as courageous. The, the first step I took was, I think, to a great extent to help me understand myself. Mm-hmm. And as I started getting, I've always been a talker, so that's, that hasn't really been an issue. But I spent 35 years or more, actually, like in childhood, hiding what had happened to me, hiding what was going on with me and at, at some point got to a level that you know I couldn't manage it so then I started talking about it mm-hmm. and I read a book the body keeps score which really resonated with me yeah. and I think a lot of people under, have that book but it mm-hmm. talked about the number of people who have suffered abuse mm-hmm. as children mm-hmm. and then like less than I think two percent of men will talk about it mm-hmm. and I thought well I don't care anymore. I will talk. So I talk about everything. And, and people have said they were concerned about whether it hurt my business mm-hmm. and how people perceive me. And I found it to be the exact opposite. It's interesting. More people will talk to me privately mm-hmm. rather than, than comment on, on any post I put out. Right. But I had a discussion with one lawyer that his comment was, if I even consider disclosing that I have depression issues I'll be taken off of the major cases and right. that'll hurt my financial position so to a great extent even though we talk more about it and the stigma is just alive as well uh, I'm I always felt I was lucky where it was my own business that you know I, I can make that decision right um, and I understand how others may not feel that way but I think it's just so important that the more we talk about it and have these conversations that it makes it what it is, a natural part of life. And this is a natural part of life. If I'm sitting in you know, a lunchroom and someone's talking about their diabetes and things that they do to manage it, or someone's talking about their hypertension and what they're doing about it, if I brought up, you know, I struggle with like how to manage my depression, mm-hmm. you know, the room just quiets. And mental health is part of health 
why can we not talk about it? So, and I apologize because I get really long answers, but I just feel I like it. <laughs> I, I just feel that you were, we're hurting so many people by not making it okay to talk about it. My own family have made, you know, they just simply will not talk about it. So mm -hmm. sadly, I, you know, in this year, I no longer have, I no longer have a relationship with my family. Mm -hmm. uh, and I felt that if they weren't able to acknowledge what happened to me and to be able to talk about it, it's not like I want to talk about it all the time, but yeah, there, there are certainly times where I do need to talk a bit about what's going on. And I've got, I guess, informing my own family with, with friends uh, who are, again, you know, there to talk and they'll listen and, and we'll have a conversation and then move on to something else, which is exactly what I want. Uh, yeah, you've, you've, you've hit on a, a bunch of things that I want to get to. We're going to, I think, talk about the difference between being an employee and an entrepreneur in terms of being able to do things like that, because I think it's an important nuance that you called out or illustrated there. But I also like, you're right, like the systems within which we work with. So whether you're a lawyer or even a physician. So I know a little bit mm -hmm. less about um, the, the law association, I would say, or the regulatory body and how they govern, but for physicians even, like if they are experiencing depression and start taking antidepressant, that when it comes up for review time, they have to disclose that. And that could actually be career limiting for them. And I guess the spirit originally might have been, well, if you're not doing well, how can you deliver good patient care? And that is so archaic because what we actually know is that, well, you're actually taking steps to feel better, which means that you're more present with yourself, you're more aware of yourself, you can use yourself safely. You're probably delivering better patient care on some level than someone that's totally shut down and not taking steps to try and manage themselves. So it's a bit ironic, but it really keeps people in high stress, high performing jobs away from even thinking about doing anything for themselves and it's they're the healers i mean that's the whole irony of all of it is it's it's so backwards right i know i i read where the cases of ptsd being diagnosed is like on the rise mm -hmm. particularly in the health professions oh uh, just because post -pandemic. of the post-pandemic and mm -hmm. to me there is again a, a figure that just stunned me was 39 percent of of women and 25% of men would have been abused in some way. Mm -hmm. So some form of trauma when they were children. Yep. Um, that's enormous. And I actually feel like those numbers could even be conservative to be exactly. honest. Probably you be know? higher. Yeah. And workplace sadly is where a lot of us are triggered. That's mm -hmm. definitely where I was. And the question would be what what's the likelihood of a childhood trauma being triggered at work? all kinds of things. You've got authority figures, you've got uh, power and balance, power balance, so all those things. Yeah. And I just did a session yesterday and uh, this is with uh, government and mm -hmm. uh, deputy minister and, and executive team. And one person mentioned that, well, there's no way we could, that we could talk about that we're suffering from anxiety or having challenges with depression. And you know, that would limit how the elected government may see their capacity. Mm -hmm. and you know people could be taken off the promotion um, ladder things like that so I just think that I have never been as creative as I am now and right. like you said I'm, I'm definitely more empathetic mm -hmm. I think I was a terrible manager like in past years 
Whereas now I think I'm far better at trying to understand where someone else is and being more empathetic about it and, and trying to find a better psychological well-being uh, yeah. in terms of approach. I find that's what's compelling about your writing. So for everybody listening, I'll link a couple of these in our show notes, but there's one post in particular from the Work Insights website that you have that is a letter to leaders. And, you know, you, you're, you're so articulate and eloquent, you kind of like nail all of the points. But one thing I took away from that is, you know, at the end of the day, whether we're an employee or an entrepreneur, we want certainty and empathy from our leaders. We want to know that they know what they're doing. So, you know, I, I always think about like the captain on the Titanic, right? <laughs> or the analogy about the flight attendant. Like when you hit turbulence, you don't look at each other. You look for, for the flight attendant. If she's panicking, then, oh God, we're going to panic. But if she's fine or he's fine, then we're, we're cool, right? So we look to leaders for that reassurance, even when times are tough. And it's okay to have the tough times if we feel like we're being taken care of, right? And I think right. even defining empathy at work, like what does that look like? What has that felt like? to you no I think the biggest thing in terms of with leaders now I think they're not clearly understanding what empathy is Um, and empathy is not sympathy and empathy is not making kind comments empathy is I think I forget the definition but it's pretty much putting yourself in someone else's shoes yeah imagining what it would be like if it happened to you yeah. yeah. And, and I think so much of it is, honestly, I think so much of it is this rate. Like uh, people put it on and um, show up a certain way, but then go back to, to what they were originally doing, which is that driven performance level. And I think leaders need to just step back a bit. And mm-hmm. we're in this extended period of certainty and ambiguity, and people are really looking for, like, can you help me make sense of it all? There's no question that all of us are carrying more stress than we used to and struggling to cope. And we're looking for leaders to not tell us what will happen, but just make sense of what is happening Yep. and how that will affect them. And hopefully ask that question, how do you feel or how does that make you feel? Mm-hmm. And to me, it's asking the question and listening. Is, is what really separates a leader. And the group I worked with yesterday, the deputy minister, I was mm-hmm. very surprised when he said, I suffer from anxiety and depression issues. And mm-hmm. I went to a therapist and it was quite easy to get in to somebody I trusted mm-hmm. and it helped me greatly. And then a few minutes later, he said, like, what's the strategy you would suggest we follow? And I said, if you would say what you just said, yeah, so that the entire workforce heard you. I said, that's incredible. I said, you don't have to give details. Mm-hmm. Of, of what got you there but the fact that someone that I'm looking up to like if I'm in that workforce and thinking yep. can I ever get to director executive director or deputy minister and no one ever you know, admits to the fact that they too um, have times of depression and anxiety we know they all do mm-hmm. but when someone does it makes me feel like, oh well then that's okay mm-hmm. and it's much more natural and I always like in the work that I do like really encourage that there has to be a senior leader particularly that the most senior leader the most that, powerful uh, person in the room that actually right. talks to this right uh, you cannot delegate mental health yep and what would you say i mean i know so many people who you know this came up in an episode previously throughout the pandemic who report to 
leaders who have never addressed how an employee might be coping, knowing full well they might have toddlers at home or they might have a, an ill partner or it just blows my mind. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard, even in my efforts before I was doing this job in my previous career, like in the business world, say that we don't, we don't talk about that at work or there's no time to talk about that. Or you go to a sales meeting and it's, it's all 100% focused on performance, but not around the conditions required to help everyone self-actualize, to feel like they're working in their strengths, to feel like they're supported, that they can access the supportive resources that they need, be it coaching, be it the right budget, be it all that kind of structure to do, to execute on performance, right? So there's this feeling like if you want to drive performance, you have to just get go hard on people. And if you get all soft and start talking about feelings, everyone's going to start bawling and no one will be able to work. It's almost like an after-school special. Like, I, I don't know where this came from. Obviously, it's existed for a long time, but it's like people think that once you suffer from depression and anxiety, you'll never get better. And I think, well, you just haven't met the right therapist yet. <laughs> you know? I think that people are far more aware now than before like even if we simply went back pre-pandemic like three years ago mm-hmm. and th- there's nothing new since mm-hmm. the pandemic everything was there before just the yep. pandemic accelerated and intensified it but i think mental health is definitely on the agenda there's a greater likelihood to be open to talking about it i think the challenge in most organizations is leaders don't quite know where to start Mm-hmm. And there's a level of discomfort, I think, as well about what if I say the wrong thing? What if I take the wrong step? And my thought is always take a step. Um, like yeah. there, there's a no regret move you can take, which is help raise awareness that mental health is a normal and natural part of life. Mm-hmm. Do that. Start there and, and figure it out. But I think conversations are always the starting place. And the more people feel that it's natural to have conversations, the more likely it is that people will open up. But there's, way back to your original question, like organizations where if the leaders themselves are struggling with how to deal with it, and there are a lot who feel that it's almost like they have to show that there's there's nothing bothering them. They can handle it all. Mm-hmm. And that in the martyr syndrome. And um to me, that actually makes it worse for people because it's telling them that, well, if if she or he is struggling, then there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, like writing on LinkedIn was a good sign that if I show that I'm vulnerable and if other people can start showing the same, mm-hmm. it actually makes it, again, accepted and natural. And these are conversations we need to have at work. Um, they're happening more all the time done some work with HR Association and one of the concerns which I found really interesting is a lot of HR professionals have said like we are not trained as therapists but yet Mm -hmm. they are becoming the natural like this is where people go to talk yeah and a lot of the questions that I've had is how do I have a conversation with somebody that either a brings it to me that they're struggling Mm -hmm. or on the other side I believe is struggling that won't face it. Mm-hmm. And I always say, well, it's, you know, one is a you conversation, one is an I conversation. So if someone comes to you about their challenge, don't try to fix them. Mm-hmm. Don't make it better. Don't say, oh, everyone goes through this and try to discount them. I said, 
most people are coming to you because A, they trust you and yeah. B, they want to be heard. And that's what it is. And validate that my feelings are, are natural, that it's okay, and that you heard me. That's mm-hmm. good. If you're going to somebody else, I think it's an eye conversation in the sense of like, I, I've been noticing, just kind of wondering about how you're doing, like I'm worried. my work, those types of things. Yeah. So I think there's more openness, but we've got a long, long way to go. It's like, you know, people are kind of aware now there's something to know something about, but maybe people aren't sure what they don't know yet. And that uncertainty can cause some reticence to just step forward into it and well taken, right? Because, you know, the last thing you want to do, I guess, is say what could be perceived as the wrong thing, quote unquote, and fear that you're going to have someone feel worse after they spoke to you. And I guess the idea is that if there's any people in HR listening or people managers, what I would say is, you know, that's a great distinction you made, a you versus an I conversation, thinking about framing it that way. But it's, you don't actually have to have the answers, right? And so our job as fellow humans isn't to fix each other's problems, but it's to bear witness on the journey. And you just have to be with someone. And then if, if someone can't figure it out on their own, or there's not an insight that they've come to even just in talking about it, then it's kind of, there's for sure an expert out there. Let's find that expert. We don't have to be the expert and that's okay. So it relieves, I think, some pressure of feeling like if someone comes to me, I, I'm a therapist and I'm not even the expert necessarily on a particular topic, but every human is the expert of their own self and their own yes. experience, right? And everyone's, this is always the challenge that like I, I keep it in my mind when I'm talking to people that each person's journey is 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 different it's unique to them and it is there's things that there's things that have worked incredibly well for me that may not work for you at all or there may be things that have really helped you that I don't I don't resonate with and Mm -hmm. I think the thing really is to again go back to the simple ability to share how we're feeling and Mm -hmm. be accepted for that um that to me is the biggest that's the biggest step to take and I always say like Mental health should be the great connector because none of us are. We all have it. it. (laughs) We all have it. But yet it's still the great divide. Uh, Again, if you bring up depression, anxiety, PTSD, ADHD, whatever you want to bring up, people become uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if I talk about my broken foot, that's or like hip problems or whatever else it is, that's that's physical and tangible. Yeah. That people can talk about it. Hey friends, if all you were told about ADHD was here's the medicine, off you go, then you've been missing about two-thirds of the recommended treatment. The stuff we know really works. Check out DIY ADHD, especially if you're waiting for services. You can get a jump start on all of the foundational education you can use to optimize the healthcare you're receiving or not receiving. Reclaim your family life. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about this resource and use the promo code CCPODCAST for 15% off. To circle back on something that came up earlier about being triggered at work. So this show is about making invisible things visible. And I think one of the things that's really invisible is actually knowing you're actually even experiencing. So the word trigger is quite overused, right? I mean, these overwork, you know, it just, it is what it is. It kind of drives me nuts sometimes, but the idea is you're at work and on the inside of your body, like you're physiologically like agitated, 
whether it's stress, whether it's, you know, you're, you're suddenly like wringing your hands, your mouth goes dry, your heart starts beating faster, your stomach feels butterfly-ish, you're having some sort of stress response throughout the day. Like this is just a normal part of being a human. All kinds of things are going to incite that physiological cascade that starts when we're quote unquote triggered. But when you have something that's triggering you over and over and over again, especially if it's in relation with another person, right? That's when it's kind of like, oh, is there something here? Because, you know, this, this person is igniting this response to me. I think they hate me or they don't understand me or I feel unduly pressured or what have you. I don't feel safe around this person. I don't feel like I can trust them. I feel like I'm being forced to do something and they're not seeing me or not hearing me. And I don't have any power to say anything. If any of those kinds of things come up, I think that's when you might be like, in a situation where you could be quote unquote triggered at work. It could be only about that work scenario, but it might not be. And the only way to know is to hash it out. Yeah, I, I find that it can be the actions of others. Mm -hmm. uh, that there was a certain way that someone close to me at work acted mm -hmm. that suddenly, I mean, I always, I have always known what happened to me as a child, always known it. Mm -hmm. um, I just, uh, I just, kept it in and suppressed it when this person acted in a certain way it was like all of a sudden that has a very visceral reaction and, yeah and i started wants to protect you from what it determines is a threatening pattern right and i think it just got to a point where i had been you know suppressing things for so long it just got to be too much and and it just started this long series and I still look at what happened as I always call it the Great Depression, but because uh, I've had different periods of depression, but that one was the big one. I think it was the best thing that happened. Functional. Uh, well, it made me stop. It made me yep. be who I am. It, it really helped me. At one, you know, find uh, the the right therapist and help that I needed, but to go on this journey and, and stop, you know, trying to please others and stop trying to be someone I'm not and and like I said, I think it's made me way more effective um, as a person to work with. Yep. Um, so I, I don't have, I don't have any regret as to, to what happened. I certainly don't wish it on somebody else. And like mm -hmm. you asked way, way back, like why I write. And one of the things is that I really hope that it you know, resonates with somebody somewhere so that they can take a step forward and not go through what I did. Uh, because that's a part that I wouldn't wish on somebody else. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I certainly don't have regrets about having gone through the depression and, and what it what it uh, then resulted in. Yeah, I think you're you're speaking to something that is really good for people to hear, which is depression is never just one thing. And you can suffer different types of depressions and it can feel different based on when it's arising, what's coming up physically it can feel different emotionally, mentally, the way you think about it can be different. And I've had a similar experience with an episode of depression in the past that looking back on it was incredibly functional because it brought me so still and so inward. I was determined to figure out how, how did I get here? Cause I never want to be here again what are all the things that led to this? And I have to figure it out. And I know when I'm done figuring it out, I'll come like, I just, I don't know what that was. I, I had some sense of that. At some point I would figure it out and, and then it would be okay. 
Um, there were there were moments when I didn't feel it would be okay for sure, but that that whole period of time for me lasted like probably a solid year of like total like down and pretty dark, right? But there was purpose to it for me as well. And sometimes depression feels it's completely not purposeful. So I, I'm just trying to say there's different types and different things that people go through that bring them there. Yeah, it's funny. I I have to talk about which one is this, this sounds terrible, but like I would rather be depressed than anxious. Mm. Um, I find anxiety drains the good out of you. And, and and it's just this constant searching for what is wrong or what will be wrong. Whereas depression can like for me it can feel quite familiar like uh, I've been through it a number of times and Mm -hmm. it's almost like this blanket you wrap around yourself it shouldn't be that way but I find anxiety is both physically and emotionally for me anyway I find it much more challenging I went through a period last year where I went through a lot of change Mm -hmm. and I just had this complete intensifying of anxiety which is hypervigilance all the time and Mm -hmm. it just takes so much out of you and again in a working environment when someone's going Mm -hmm. through that it's really difficult for them to make decisions because you're just dealing with so many issues and I definitely look back when I was going through the great depression Mm -hmm. um, there was decisions I wish I would have deferred there are several business decisions that to a great extent were forced on me Mm -hmm. I would have handled them quite a bit differently now And it's not to say that that was a problem with having depression. It was not having dealt with my depression that, you know, as I've gone through therapy and I've I've been more in tune with the way that anxiety and and depression affects me, Mm -hmm. I can make, I can make very good decisions now Mm -hmm. without question. But at that time I was resisting, I think to a great extent dealing with it. And that just adds to the the pressures. And that's where I think the poor decisions come in. Yeah, I think the the demon of depression also is that it has you believe that you need to deal with it by yourself. And we become quite emotionally isolated, even when we're not physically isolated. I mean, you can be lonely within a marriage, even though there's two of you there all the time, right? And so the emotional connection is so important. And so imagine a workplace that, the leader is going through their thing that they're going through for whatever reason, but close trusted advisors next to them are saying, Hey, like, I can see that you're struggling. Can I step in to support? We came up with this plan before that when this was happening, here's what we're going to do to lean on each other. And, and everyone does that for each other. If, if there's that level of, like, I call it mental health literacy mm-hmm. to be able to notice something And then to say, hey, that's not really like you. What can I do to help? And hopefully we know each other well enough to know what is helpful. And sometimes there's something and sometimes they're not. But when it comes to making business decisions, right? Yeah, in my situation, I had uh, two businesses at the time when I was really struggling with depression and and had to, that was the first time I ever had to leave work. Mm. And they always said I was a high functioning depressive. Mm -hmm. uh, So I could still function. But at, at this one point, I just simply could not work any longer. Yeah. My business partner chose that point to say, my former business partner <laughs> chose that point to say, I don't think you'll ever be capable or competent again. So he triggered the bio clause in our partnership agreement, which took me out at half price, oh. which 
which I did not at the time have the, the strength to deal with that. And I allowed it to happen. Right. I talked a number of years ago to somebody and they were looking for a therapist and we just were, were talking. And his comment was, my business partner is really struggling. I'd like to understand how I can best support him. Mm. Wow. Like, I wish. Oh, that, just made my, that just made my whole body go warm. Yeah. Wow. It just, to me, that was, yeah, that was not what I got. But I couldn't believe that that approach was such a positive way. Yeah. And um, we had a great chat. And I said, I think probably one of the first things is to make it okay for your business partner to talk about it because he's at that time struggling. They end up going to actually to, to counseling together. That's amazing. Uh, That's so pro-social, pro-amazing. Wow. And they're still in business today. They still have a very active business, actually. Yeah. And so it's things like that that shows if you choose to be open and you select proactive and vulnerable, it mm. actually it takes you somewhere in business. This is, this is how workplaces are like families, right? So not to psychoanalyze any of these people I don't know, but maybe if, if you know, you're listening and similar types of, you know, themes have happened in your workplace experience, like when something hard happens and someone leans into it and turns towards it to help, you can imagine that person probably grew up in a family that actually solved problems together. They felt like they were each all responsible for each other. And it, it's not boundaryless. It sounds like they thought that they had some role to play and they wanted to find out more information about what it could possibly be versus someone who, when something hard happens, they kind of panic and turn away or they feel like that they just have to cut their losses and run. And that might be true in the situation they grew up with, but it's not necessarily true in their adult life, except the pattern matching our nervous system does would have us believe it's true, right? And that's where we run into troubles and we don't have the ability to just have some wiggle room and some space to question. I've seen this before. I've seen, you know, someone have a hard time and not be there for me. And I had to deal with everything by myself and left me holding the bag. I don't want that to happen again. I've got too many people depending on me is like the conclusion people can jump to. But is that really true? And if we don't have any framework or language or scaffolding with which to even explore that, then we're going to have all these broken relationships, right? I think it's particularly difficult for entrepreneurs who own a business and are married to each other. Oh, and uh, I, yeah. I, I did a session a few months ago and a woman attending was clearly struggling and she was starting to cry. And mm. So I called a break and, and I had a conversation with her privately and she said, I'm just realizing, she said, like, you know, my husband is dealing with depression. Mm -hmm. He's co-owner of the business. She said, I have been blaming him. She mm -hmm. said, I have been berating him. And she said, like, I've been telling him to suck it up. Like, as mm -hmm. entrepreneurs, we are supposed to set the example. Yeah. She said, I just suddenly realized what, I, what I'm doing to him. And she said, like, I'm going to go home. And I said, wait, you're going to go home and do what? She goes, <laughs> I'm going to ask him questions. And yes, I said you're going to you're going to ask him. I said you're going to tell him what to do. And yeah. she said, I'm a planner. I said that's really good, but don't plan it for him. I said, yeah, you can't guess. plan out our depression, right? Yeah, and here's how it's going I, to go. <laughs> I had a I had a you know, wonderful email from her that she and her husband had had really great conversations, and she had him listen to the recording of the session that I had done, 
and uh, she said they'd had a series of really good conversations. And anyway, that was again like, why do I, why do I write? Why do I talk about these things? It's stories like that. Just one person did something because of something that came up in a session, and it made a really positive difference for for either that person or someone around them. And, mm-hmm. and that to me makes it really worthwhile. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. I mean, it's like sometimes even as a therapist, I do provide education for free through social media posts and some therapists do and some therapists don't. And sometimes I question myself, like, why am I doing this? Right. And then, and then it's always within like an hour, somebody sends me a message and lets me know how some message I posted six months ago that I don't even remember was something that started some journey for them. And they're just following up now to let me know. And it is always just like an incredible, incredible moment where I'm like, okay, that's why I do it, right? It's to reach just that one person and whoever it lands with, beauty. And everyone else it doesn't land with, that's okay. Like they're not in that spot and that's all right. I also have to watch the old vanity metrics too, like how many people are reading it, things like that. Mm, And just remember why I'm doing it. And uh, I find that always settles me pretty quickly. Yeah, bringing it back down to the 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 meaningfulness of it in that moment. Right. It's, it's so transformative. From a business perspective, the things that you've got are just so incredible. And I'd love for you just to talk about whatever part of it you like to, like the mindset project or work insights. Like how did you even get into this? It's just so amazing. If you could maybe just describe them briefly. Like I had mentioned, I had the shotgun clause to come out of my other businesses. So as an entrepreneur, I had to start another business. There's no way around it. I couldn't take a job, but that's just the way I am. And of course, at that time, I was really struggling with, was there something wrong with me that and this was me being weak, that I, I couldn't handle these things. So I started the Mindset Project, which was really focused on understanding entrepreneurs' mental health and decision-making. And I did it because I am an analyst. So I did it to, to really understand when I found out that, wow, am I, am I not alone? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that you know, 67% of entrepreneurs will have a mental health challenge during their working years. And 49% of, of entrepreneurs have a first degree family member that had a mental illness during their childhood. So that made me suddenly start to feel that, oh, okay, so this happens a lot. Mm-hmm. So then it took me down the road of well, how how can I help that? And that took me into Work Insights, which is the business I started to look at what the employee experience is like mm-hmm. and how do we create healthier work environments, which in turn creates way more successful organization. Yeah. The leaders are the people who will sign the check and move the initiative forward. Right. So right. I was looking at how do I connect this to business outcomes? But one thing that I found with Work Insights, where so we use analytics, mm-hmm. uh, interpretive analytics to actually put numbers to, so I've always been fascinated by people, why people do what they do, mm-hmm. and how do you make sense of that? And as an analyst, I like numbers, so I combined the two. So I started putting numbers to perspectives that people have of their experience um, in an organization. And that has been incredibly rewarding. And we just did a session this morning with the CEO and COO mm-hmm. and very challenging numbers. But I always like to look at it, the whole piece as I like to get people to rethink. So there's certain assumptions that they have and I ask what they are and I 
say, okay, well, I'd like to go through this with you. And then I'd like you to test those assumptions and just rethink mm -hmm. where you think, see things, and how you, know, you could make some positive change. And I had absolutely fantastic session with them. And what I really enjoyed was, was seeing them really appreciate what, what was going on and what they could do to make a positive difference. Mm -hmm. And one of them, I would say it's fairly well known for being quite driven and uh, assertive, but it's a nice way. But that's what's really rewarding. So the Mindset Project has been my way of really bringing light to the incredible stress that entrepreneurs face and typically will not deal with and still do not. And the pandemic has really amplified that. Yeah. And then Work Insights was a progression. That's the main business I have, and that's really looking at you know, how do we have healthier work environments where people walk away with experience that's really positive for them? What are there are there characteristics of the types of companies that are coming forward now and saying, yes, I want to learn more about how to build a psychologically safe culture? I wish. Okay. Usually if there's a problem. Okay. There I'd have to say there's almost always a problem. Right. And what it always comes down to is there's some initiative that leaders or leader a leader wants to move forward and they're struggling with it and they're getting as they would call it the usual resistance mm -hmm. and and i help them understand what that resistance is yes we can and it's not necessarily resistance it's it's again understanding how decisions are made and how it impacts it's an operations and a process problem like people's hearts are in the right place but their operational procedures don't actually line up to accompany that, right? Dynamics that come out of it. Uh, so, so typically what I see is it's more the way that leaders make and communicate decisions. Mm -hmm. It's not so much the decisions they make, but it's how they make them, um, which is in a boardroom away from everybody else. Right. And then how they communicate them. Almost like here it is and that's it. You should understand what to do. And that will impact the, the behaviors and the attitudes of the culture, create dynamics of, of what it's like to work here and, and a mindset for what it's like to be here. Yeah. So to me, all those pieces connect. And when you say, like, it sounds odd, I know, but like nothing is more fun for me than seeing the data start. Like when we do an analytic and we get the data coming through, you just start seeing the pattern. You start seeing the connection. You can tell I'm an analyst because like, it's just, <laughs> fun to see like the correlations and what goes with what and yeah I just find that utterly fascinating and on the other side of it it's it's not just numbers and what's really interesting about the numbers is that it almost enables people to have conversations about really sensitive topics that they probably would not normally have talked about well, it's a great way to externalize the problem so it's not now resting inside of me as a human being it's there on a spreadsheet. So it becomes manageable to deal with it, right? It, it, it provides some objectivity to it. Uh, but if, if I went into an organization and said, you know, based on interviews I've had and based on talking to people, I think there's a really high level of stress around financial security in terms of how the company's yeah. doing. Yeah. So as the owner, I could discount my comments really quickly as well. That's what you heard. That's what you think. It's your perspective. But when I can go back and say that 58.2% of people are struggling with higher stress that they believe will last longer, mm -hmm. and the reason for that, 56-7% say they're concerned about financial stability. Mm -hmm. Hell, I had those numbers from another place. 
but to really quickly it becomes a discussion of not is that real, but it becomes a discussion of how do we deal with that? Because yeah, like, that's going to affect the bottom line at the end of the day, right? It's always the internal story first. Like I don't think business people and leaders get that at times that mm -hmm. we, we spend thousands and millions of dollars on the messaging to the market, to customers. Yep. We almost never spend anything on communicating internally, but that inner story that we have about how this organization works. Yep. That's not a line. It doesn't matter how much you spend on marketing, it's not going to go anywhere. Well, yeah, like no, whether your business is selling a service or a product or what, what have you, if you don't take care of your people, they can't take care of your customers. Like I don't, yep. I don't know where I heard that like a decade ago and it made so much sense to me. But there's, there's, there remains people managers who treat their people like crap, harp, harp, harp on the bottom line, what they've got to go out and, and bring back in quarter by quarter without realizing that like none of that, none of that's working, right? As soon as you hear to the terms human resources, human capital, and my favorite is always and always will be, people are our greatest asset, mm -hmm. which usually tells you there's a big problem. Mm. So I just, again, we haven't really looked at how to talk about the psychological well-being of people, yeah. which is, which is the employee experience. Yeah. And, you know, we're getting there now. We do understand it and not quite sure probably how to work with it. And anyway, that's my kind of reason to live is to, to, to work it's amazing. through that. I'm so grateful that you're out in the world doing the things that you're doing. And my understanding is you work mostly with leaders of companies and maybe owners, but what can like a subordinate do if they're in a workplace culture that doesn't feel safe to talk about anything? We talk about managing up and all those kinds of things. So what can you do when you're a subordinate to try and influence this stuff and not feel like you're going to lose your job? I find a lot of times, you know, you can lead change from, from any position. What you're talking about is though leading with a little bit of caution. So how do you have that conversation? I do find when you ask questions, people will open up and talk. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at managing up, if again, if you go in and present an opinion, mm -hmm. it becomes debatable because mm -hmm. that is your opinion. Mm -hmm. If you go in and ask questions, yeah, a little curiosity. Yeah. yeah. And people start responding. And and I think if you went in and say, I know I've been struggling a bit, and I see I think I see other people doing like how do you feel about like what you see? Like mm -hmm. it's finding out what they see and getting them to talk about it. Mm -hmm. there, there are a lot of leaders that I think are probably looking for the opportunity to have a conversation, but don't feel they can. So sometimes if you're reporting to somebody, you might actually enable that conversation. But I think if you if you bring things like articles are great. So if you're really concerned about how do I have this conversation. You could say, I found this great article. It really was like <laughs> in terms of what was going on in this company. And then you can have a conversation about that afterwards. But yeah. I think it's looking at how do you open up a conversation? Is it through yeah. questions? Is it through if the person that you're reporting to is a real reader, then you, know, you can definitely do that. But yep. um, it will open it up. But psychological safety is I mean, the foundation of, of a healthy working environment. Yeah, making and, it okay uh, to have the conversation in the first place, to share curiosities with each other. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Very much. Cool. Thank you so much.
I'm know, conscious I'm of our time. I know I could, <laughs> I could talk about this for a long time. I very much appreciate you sharing the things that you've shared. I think that, again, I know I've said this a couple of times, it's so great to see a man in your position talking about these things. And I hope more men do. And, and women too, often any, any person who is in any position of power, be it the color of their skin or their status or their job or their perceived reputation, like to use it to create space so that people who feel like they can't talk can share just in their experiences of being a human allows us all to feel more connected and from a workplace perspective at the end of the day, able to do the thing that hopefully you like doing. And if you don't, let's find you another job, but (laughs) you know, we should all be doing things that we love. So I'm just so grateful for your time. No, I appreciate it. I really, yeah. Thank you for having me on. And hopefully the conversation, like we talked about resonates with somebody there. Yeah. I'll make sure I link all of your information and a couple of your articles that I really loved in our show notes too. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's great. That is all for today, my friends. We hope you enjoyed being a fly on the wall for this awesome discussion. Check out the show notes on the episode page for all the relevant links we discussed today. You can submit a voice memo for future episodes if you want. Leave me a message there and let me know what you thought. If you like the show, please take a screenshot, share it on your social medias, tag me at Dig a Little Deeper Therapy so we know we should keep doing this and that you like what we're putting out for you. Until then, see you next time.